0: This morning, we are in Mark chapter 11. We are continuing our series, going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, as we are stepping through it uh, passage by passage, so to speak, and seeing all the ways that Mark, the writer of this Gospel, is showing us an unexpected Savior, uh, a Savior that doesn't always meet our expectations. Last week we saw the triumphal entry of Jesus in the first uh, 11 or so verses of chapter 11. Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds are crying Hosanna and all that, all that fanfare that's there. And, and the, the remarkable fact that Jesus is now openly, publicly accepting the title of Messiah from all those who are there. He is the anointed one and there's no question about that. But I think in, as we noted last week, one of the most curious uh, details about this passage, and I would say to, uh, not to just keep repeating the word, but truly is unexpected, the fact that Jesus, immediately upon entering the city, where does he go? Well, if you look at verse 11, look at it again, it says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the throne room, and he sat on the throne and he established peace for Israel for, no, it doesn't say that. It says that he enters into the temple. And it, notice it says, So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Apparently this was a very long event, Jesus entering into the city. And he enters into the temple and he looks around and he's noticing things. Noticing things. Things and is, we aren't given a clue as to what he notices until the very next day because, again, the hour's late, they have to get back home, get some rest, get some sleep. But Jesus, is, Jesus notices something specific about the temple, about uh, specifically what's going on in the temple, such that he is adamant and determined and very resolved in returning to the temple the next day. But before we get there, we have to talk about some fruit. So spe- specifically figs. So this morning, uh, I have a first lesson for you in these first couple of verses. A lesson about fruitfulness. Because here, we have this scene with the fig tree. I don't know about you. <clears throat> I don't have much familiarity with figs. I will say that, in fact, the only uh, sort of uh, proximity I've been into figs has been fig newtons. Which I hardly think counts. Um, I can eat a sleeve of Fig Newtons. Or I used to, to cut. I don't think I could anymore. But that's, that's my relationship with figs. Uh, I've never plucked a fig off of a fig tree and just munched on it like an apple. I've never done that. I don't know if you should or should not or if that's a good thing to do or not. Maybe you can enlighten me. I don't know. Uh, but regardless, Jesus and his apostles... They uh, go back to Bethany after this first day, the triumphal entry. And here they come back into Jerusalem. Notice verse 12. Now the next day, again, w- remember, we are in Holy Week, so to speak. This is day two of the last week of Jesus' life here uh, in earthly ministry. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps... He would find something on it. So Jesus' and the disciples, they are, have woken up early in the morning. And they are on the road back to Jerusalem. And Jesus sees this fig tree. And, 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 and of all things, this fig tree becomes sort of an object lesson, so to speak, of what, what happened that day in the temple. But notice, I like that interesting detail at the end of verse 12 where it just says, he was hungry. Again, another evidence of Jesus' humanity. Jesus hungered. His stomach growled just like yours does when you're hungry. And here, Jesus and his disciples are hungry as they go. I think this is also a detail to note the early hour in which they have gone to the temple. It's early in the day. They are determined, Jesus in, in fact, is determined to get back into this place... To do something specific. And as they go, they get hungry. Unfortunately for them, at least at first sight, they see this fig tree from afar off and they see it having leaves. Look at, again, they see from afar off a fig tree having leaves. But as they approach this tree, that's all that they find. All they find are leaves. Verse 13, again, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. This is obviously disappointing. If I was, a, I, I don't like figs, so we'll just change the fruit. If it was an apple tree, I would be very disappointed if I saw what I thought would be a lots of apples and there was no apples on said apple tree. This is Disappointing. It's disappointing for Jesus and his followers, but in response to the barrenness of this fig tree, Jesus does something startling. He pronounces judgment on it. Look at it again. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, verse 14, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. How about you? I've never been that disappointed in an apple tree for not giving me fruit where I pronounce judgment on it. Also, too, imagine being one of Jesus' apostles in this moment. Again, step back. Put yourself in. Don't get ahead of the text. Put yourself right here. Think about one of Jesus' apostles. They come to this fig tree. There's no figs on it. And all of a sudden, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on a tree? Imagine how strange that must have been. Jesus, it's just a fig tree. We can grab a bite to eat when we get to Jerusalem. They have a really good bagel shop. I'm sure it'll satisfy us. We don't have to worry about figs. And yet Jesus is pronouncing judgment on this fig tree. And it's also curious too, that detail at the end of verse 13, where it says, For it was not the season for figs. Because then, just a a cursory reading of the text might make you think that Jesus is actually judging this tree unfairly. That he's coming to the tree, and it's not even in season enough to produce fruit. So it it would feel like he's being unfair to this tree. But in fact, that's actually not what's happening because, uh, in fact, the presence of leaves on fig trees, especially in this region, indicates that there should be fruit present also. Notice he says, there's nothing but leaves for it's not the season for figs. There should have been figs there because there were leaves there. Fig trees in this region, in fact, often produced a a copious amount of leaves, or, excuse me, fig buds, before even the presence of leaves. And so, here, the buds uh, uh, would appear in spring, which is likely when this event is taking place, with the actual full fruits becoming fully ripened later in early autumn. And here, there's... An abundance of leaves, a telltale sign that there should be some sort of fruit that you can enjoy and be satisfied by. It was natural to expect that, but when they get there, there's no fruit to be had. Just leaves, just foliage. And here, that's the issue. The issue at present why Jesus judges this tree and judges it and says no one is ever going to eat fruit from you ever again. Is the fact that this fig tree has the appearance of fruitfulness without the actual substance of fruit. It's the appearance of an abundant harvest ready to be had without anything to back it up. Without any fruit really being able to be had. This tree has falsified its claims of being a fruit-bearing tree. It's a liar. The tree has failed. And this is what sparks Jesus' frustration. Because he sees in this tree a tree that has failed in its treeness, if I might say that. It's failed to live up to what it was supposed to be as a fig tree. And so after finding nothing, he condemns this tree. And again, there's no denying that the scene is curious. It's peculiar that Jesus would have such disdain for a a plant. (laughs) It's a strange little scene in Jesus' life. It's strange that so much attention would be given to it. There's a parable in the coming chapters, I think it's chapter 13, where he revisits the parable of the fig tree. So it, obviously this is something that's not just a throwaway scene. But like, cause, and that's, I think, to show that, like always, there's more that's going on than just what we see. He's not just just trying to condemn this tree for disappointing his apostles and having them get bummed out because they have no fruit. There's more that's going on with this scene. You see, he was using this tree to teach them something about faith. Faith, which, again, he has been harping on throughout his earthly ministry. So a lesson about fruitfulness. Let me come now to the second lesson. Hold that thought, a lesson about faith. Keep that in the back of your head. Because, or a lesson about fruitfulness. Because here, number two, we have a lesson about faithfulness. Because look at what happens. So he condemns this tree, and it says, and his disciples heard it, verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple again and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. It's a startling scene. Jesus enters the temple for the second day in a row. Immediately upon coming into Jerusalem. He enters the place where all of the religious life is centered. You can see very clearly what is foremost in Jesus' mind. Reorienting the common assumptions. And I would even say corruptions of religion that had gone on. And that were existing in this day. And it's evident, of course, that that's exactly what's on his mind because of what he does here in the temple. And again, here, if you wanted to know the things that Jesus noticed the day before when he entered the temple, these are the things he noticed. These are the things that caught his attention. And he was so burdened by them that he couldn't spend time doing what he wanted to do. Because the hour was already late. So he comes back the next day and look at what happens. He enters the temple and he drives out those who were buying and selling. Driving out the money changers. Driving out those who were extorting worshipers. He had observed all these evils taking place. And now he was there to execute judgment on those people. He couldn't stand. His father's house being perverted into a den of thieves he says. Into a a haven for the lowest of the lowliest people. He couldn't stand for that. But his rebuke, I want you to notice. His rebuke is not necessarily for the fact that animals, doves as it mentions here, are being bought and sold. Because that was a common practice. It was common to sell animals within some of the outer courts of the temple, uh, so to speak, to give a convenience for uh, outside travelers, vid- visitors coming to the temple from afar off that had no sacrifice to offer. That wasn't necessarily the problem. The, that, and that's, I don't think, what Jesus is correcting. Jesus is correcting those, his, his crosshairs we might say, are fixed squarely on the temple uh, attendants who were overcharging and we can I might even say profiting off of the people that were in the temple that day. They were profiting off of the business of the very temple in which they claimed to be worshipping. Instead they were just conducting business there. Notice again verse 17. Then he taught saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Goods were being bought and sold in these courts. Courts that should have been reserved for fear and reverence and worship and adoration and praise. Now they're being turned into a place for personal benefit and profit. Being turned into a place where coins can be exchanged and you can trade in this for that. And you can make some money and do some business. It was no longer a house of worship. It was a place of trade. It was a place of business. Verse 16 is a curious verse. It's it's unique only to Mark. Mark. He includes this detail that Jesus enforces even further that he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Wares is from a Greek word which actually doesn't have a very specific meaning. It's just kind of like items or things. And essentially what Jesus is saying and essentially what Jesus is correcting is the fact that people were actually using the temple courts as sort of a shortcut through the city. They weren't going there to worship. They were just kind of passing through. They were using it as a place to get to the other place. The place they really wanted to go. Wherever that was. The reverence, the seriousness of the place of God was being perverted and polluted by business and trade and commerce. So we can rightly say that the worship center had become a commercial center. And in Jesus' mind, this could not stand. This could not be. The attendants of the temple that day were not there to help others worship God, Jehovah, the God over all people. They were only there to help themselves, to help fill their pockets, to help uh, put more money in their bank accounts. And this is what fills Jesus with holy anger. Because this place of worship had been turned into a den of thieves. And it's not just that they were extorting the patrons. It's not just that they were overcharging and profiting. I think it's also because they were violating what the temple was supposed to represent. Namely, the closeness and the nearness of Jehovah God. The very presence of Yahweh, the one who had guided the people of Israel through all of the wilderness. When the tabernacle is turned into the temple, it's still supposed to mean the presence of God. The personal closeness, nearness of God, the deliverer of God, Jehovah, of God creator. And here they're perverting it into a place where they can sell and buy and trade. No longer is it reserved for the humbler adoration of a God who forgives wretches. It's a place of business. And in fact, faith and forgiveness have here been replaced by financial gain. And Jesus steps in and cleanses the temple as it's often referred to. This is the scene of Jesus cleansing the temple of all these money changers. And this is why Jesus made a point to teach his apostles about the lesson of the fig tree. Because notice again. So he comes into the temple, verse 17. And he, and he cleanses it. And jump down to verse 19. When evening had come, he went out of the city. They go back, it says. In, in Luke, it says they actually go back to the Mount of Olives. They go back to Bethany. And the next morning, verse 20. Again, day three. Keep the days in your mind. Day three of Holy Week. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. They passed by the same tree they had the day before. And Peter and the other apostles are quite startled by what they see Notice verse 21, and Peter remembering, remembering the day before, remembering that scene where Jesus unexpectedly pronounces this vicious judgment on a tree. says, Peter remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. They're startled by what they see. Because Jesus didn't just pronounce judgment, he actually cursed This tree and now they see this curse living up to the name. It's dried up from the roots and withered away. The judgment of this barren fig tree has completely removed all life from the tree itself. And rightly so. The fig tree failed in its duty as a fig tree. It offered no fruit. And in that way the fig tree was a perfect illustration of Israel as well. Because they had failed as the people of God. Failed to bear fruit. They had much leafy religion we might say. Leafy religion that appears as if it's very fruitful. But in fact it's nothing but leaves. It's... No fruit at all. And here, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get his apostles to see. That this judgment of this fig tree is like another living parable. It's another living illustration right in front of their eyes. Of the failure of their nation. Which had the appearance of religion without the substance. Which looks beautiful on the outside. But inside to steal Matthew's words. Jesus' words from Matthew. But inside are full of dead men's bones. As it says in Matthew 23. And in that sense. This cleansing of the temple. Is Jesus exacting judgment on Israel's deceptive religion. And pretended piety. Where they thought themselves so holy and pious and devout. And Jesus is coming to them and saying to them, you're nothing but leaves. You have no fruit at all. They were not faithful. They had failed. With that, not that lesson, by the way. The Pharisees, as, as we know in verse 18, they are not privy to sort of the capping off of this lesson the next day. But in, Jesus's, in the moment of Jesus' cleansing of the temple, they are again frustrated by Jesus' acts. They again don't see what is trying to be conveyed to them by the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. Strong words. For they feared him. Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Rather than heed Jesus' words. Instead they just furthered the plot to get rid of this nuisance of a teacher. This annoying man from Galilee who is stirring up the people with his doctrine. With his teaching. He's getting in the way of our business. We've got to get rid of this guy. Here they further that plan down the road. And such is why Jesus makes this point. A lesson about faithfulness. Or we might say failed faithfulness. But which is also why he continues where we can get into our third lesson. Which is a lesson about forgiveness. Because notice what happens. Look at verse 22. So the fig tree has been cursed. It's withered up and dried up. Verse 22, so Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. The surprise of the apostles on their faces at the the evidence of this tree's cursed nature is answered remarkably by Jesus with those two words, have faith. You see, he's really just saying to them, why are you so surprised? What did you expect to find? And I think the implication is that no fruit as a result of no faith equals a loss of life. Fruit is the, uh, is, is the bearing out of faith and without that there is no life. Such is why the tree withers and such is why Israel have withered too. Because they weren't bearing fruit. Because they had lost their faith. This is the only possible outcome when faith is forfeited. This is the only possible outcome when faith is set to the side. When it's no longer a concern to bear fruit in our lives. Je- see, Jesus is, when he says has faith, he's not uh, sort of giving them a, a secret for killing fig trees by the words of their mouth. <laughs> He's not giving them a sort of a way in which they can incarnate the, the judgment of God and, and, and name it and claim it, so to speak. He's teaching us what is the lifeblood of all faith, of all religion. It's dependence upon God. Have faith in God, he says. And such is why he proceeds to unpack the nature of faith in these next couple of verses. Look what he says. For, or verse 22, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. There's no question, in my mind at least, that... Some of these phrases have caused no small amount of confusion in believers' lives. That if we just ask, in faith we can have whatever we want. At least that's how we read these verses at first glance many times. This is a name it and claim it passage, right? I can name it and I can claim it and it's exactly opposite of what Jesus is saying. (laughs) That's not to be inferred from Jesus' words. Not that if you just pray hard enough. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not Jesus' point. Actually, I think Jesus is coming to, to certify, to clarify, to, to really confirm in his apostles' minds and ours, likewise, the, where the power of religion, where the power of, of prayers really come from. Not because of any particular words that we say. Not because of any special emotion that we demonstrate. They are powerful only because of the one we pray to. The one in which we are praying. Which is why he prefaces this with have faith in God. And God's words for you, and God's will for you. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to illustrate that the religion of his father is one that is less concerned with formality and is more concerned with faith. Specifically, the faith in God, the father's impossible power. Remember, we looked at that idea of impossibility becoming possible when he was replying to the rich young ruler. And that it was impossible for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And such is it impossible for you to get into heaven by your works. And essentially he's saying a similar thing here. He inserts this impossible scenario of moving mountains with the words of your mouth. To show you just how the impossible can be possible when you have faith in God. Which is not to say that anything you desire in faith will come about. It's namely, specifically, I think, leaning towards one thing. He's using this figure of speech, this really hyperbolic illustration of moving mountains to show the impossibility of faith that lays hold on the promise of God. Specifically, the promise of forgiveness. Because notice verse 25. He says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. The faith that he's talking about here is the faith in the forgiveness of God the Father. The forgiveness, by the way, which he had come to bring about. Which he had come to win, so to speak, in his own body. And this, by the way, forgiveness has and always will be God's primary religious ingredient. You want a faithful church? You want a fruit bearing church? Be a forgiving church. Be a church that forgives wrongs, great or small. This is the one of the most commonly misunderstood ingredients of the religion of the gospel. One that the, that the Pharisees can constantly refuse to accept. By the way, which is also, I think, the doctrine which so astonishes the people, as it says in verse 18. Because remember, remember a couple of chapters ago? Where the Pharisees come up and, and try to uh, uh, argue with Jesus about how He is claiming forgiveness. How can you deal out forgiveness? He can because He's God. He can because in His reality, if we can say it that way His sin-bearing death has already happened. Therefore forgiveness is already a reality. Therefore, when you pray for it, it's as if it's already happened. It's as if it's already been done. Because it is. It's finished. <laughs> Such is what those verses in verse 23 and 24 are hearkening back to. The already doneness, if I can say that way, of the forgiveness that's possible in Jesus Christ. Over and over again, the Pharisees were frustrated by this element in Jesus' teaching the forgiveness of. Sins, And you can be sure that when faith has been forfeited, it's likely because forgiveness has lost its luster. We don't go out of our way to forgive those who wrong us. We don't go out of our way to think about the forgiveness that we are living freely in. Forgiveness, my friends, I have firmly believed is the center of our faith. Everything revolves around the forgiveness of sins that emanates from Jesus Christ, the one who is sinless, who forgives sinners freely by the death of his own self. This is what makes our faith different. This is what makes the news that we proclaim the best news in all the world. It's because we have the news of the forgiveness of sinners. Forgiveness that is sure, that is certain, that is foundational before anyone even lifts a finger. It's because it's possible in this person, Jesus Christ. Possible, this impossible reality. It's possible because of Jesus, because of his very life, because he is God incarnated in the flesh. Such is why he can say, have faith in God, which can also be read, have faith in me. Because I'm about to move the mountain of your sin and put it on myself. I'm going to move the mountainous sins of the whole world and all of the world past and all of the world in the future. I'm going to put that all on myself. I'm going to... Pay for that forgiveness for you. And it's going to be assured in the fact that I have died and rose again. This is when we pray for forgiveness of sins. This is what we are praying for. An already assured reality. The objective fact that forgiveness is already ours in Jesus Christ. Who has already died and risen again. We're not praying for some sort of might be hopeful reality. It's sure and certain in Jesus. When you pray for forgiveness, be sure of it because you can be, because Jesus has already died and risen again. You don't have to hope or wish. You could be confident in the impossible possibility of forgiveness of, yes, even the most wretched of sins. Because Jesus has accomplished it. He has finished it. This is the certainty of our faith. The forgiveness of God. The certainty of God's forgiveness for us. Precedes any amount of faithfulness. Any amount of fruitfulness on our part. So you see a church that is Fruit bearing, a church is a church that is faithful, which is also a church that is most aware of its need for forgiveness, and is also most aware of its ability and its power and its responsibility to forgive others. Which will make it a faithful church, which will make it a fruit bearing church. And here Jesus is saying that to this body, this temple. This is what the church is supposed to be in the business of. Not in the business of financial gain. One writer says it this way. The church is supposed to be in the forgiveness business. (laughs) I like that. That's what we tender. We tender forgiveness through the proclamation of the good news. Which leads me to ask and wonder. I wonder what Jesus would find if he showed up in churches across this country. If he showed up like he did here, what would he find? What, would, what things, as it says, would he notice and look around and see? I have no doubt that Jesus' actions in the temple might be repeated in no small amount of churches across this nation. Churches who have forgotten what it means to be a fruit-bearing, faithful, forgiving church. Forgotten what it means to have the true religion of the good news. Who have instead of pointing their patrons to the only one who can forgive their sins and fill their lives with hope and meaning and joy. They have polluted their sanctuaries with messages of life hacks and cheapens faith and better tomorrows. They've watered down the message of the gospel with saccharine sweet Sermonettes. That make you feel good. That appear as if there's abundant harvest. But in the end it's nothing but leaves. There's no fruit. It's a leafy religion. From a leafy faith. That appears beautiful. But inside is full of deadness. Inside is Jesus to use another phrase from that chapter. Matthew 23 is is like a whited sepulchre. It's a tomb that's been painted white to appear more pretty. Like the temple attendants on this day, I think there are scores of churchgoers and church leaders who, like this den of thieves, have stolen men's hearts. With a leafy religion. And rather encouraging them and enriching them in their faith. Rather than enlightening visitors to to see the one who can forgive their sins. They've resorted to exploiting them for profit. There are preachers I'm thinking of. I'm not going to name names here. You can see me afterwards if you want. But I would say nothing much makes the Lord more sick than that. Then for a man to have souls in the palm of his hand and to instead of uh, tell that soul where forgiveness to be found can be found, he instead pleads for money in his pocket. This is something I was this is not in my notes. this is free. This is something I was most burdened with upon becoming the pastor of this church. How can I be distracted when I'm here? How can I be talking about such and such story of such and such movie or whatever and entertain you? When the fact is, there's not just lives that are represented. There's souls in the balance. I've written about this in a couple places only to say that I I don't think that a pastor has a quote dangerous job. You may laugh at that, even at confession. (laughs) But I think there's another way in which the pastor's job is the most dangerous job in the world. Only because there are souls. Eternity is at stake for every person who walks through the threshold of that door. And depending on what they hear or don't hear, they can walk away knowing where their eternity lies. That's why I labor so much about what God would have me to say. Because I don't want to speak just to your life and make it feel better and make you all feel rosy and whatever. I want to speak to your soul so that you can be sure that when you walk out of this door, you know that your eternity is staked in heaven because of the impossible possibility of God's forgiveness in Christ. I don't want anyone to ever leave here and not get that message. Because that's the only message I'm called to speak. That's the only message we are called to speak. Churches who have forfeited that message have forfeited what it means to be the church. Because again, churches are supposed to be in the forgiveness business. What would Jesus find if he showed up here at Stonington Baptist Church? Would he find forgiving hearts? That were in the lives of faithful believers who were bearing fruit with their actions and words and thoughts? I pray that he would. I pray that we too would be a forgiving, faithful, fruitful church. Let us pray.